Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Go Boldly Mastermind podcast. I'm Scott Spade. I'm your host, and I am truly excited today to have Bill Pickle on on the call with me. Um, I have just recently met Bill and been on a couple calls with him, and uh, his story will will absolutely blow your mind. I, I think some of the some of his career path is absolutely fascinating to me, and it's different than what I've ever done. And so, welcome to the welcome to the show, Bill. Well, thanks, Scott. I appreciate that. Welcome. Absolutely. So you uh, you've had quite the career in the political world, so to speak. Um, not necessarily as a politician, but but a part of the politicians' world. <laughs> yeah, you know, Scott. As we talked earlier, I think we're a sum of all our experiences, and and I don't think I ever planned for anything. Uh, I think I just ended up getting jobs which I enjoyed and making career moves that I enjoyed. I think I only had one bad job in my life, and uh, and I've had a lot of bad jobs, but the worst job was when I was in the military. <laughs> but wow. I'd, never, I'd never changed it at all. Yeah, Absolutely. Well, you were uh, – so let's go back to how did you how did you get started? You So you joined the military. Did you join right out of high school or – Yeah, yeah, I uh, – you know, I know you're from down around Pensacola in the South Florida and yes, uh, up in Southern Virginia where patriotism was and remains very strong. Absolutely. Both with a Confederate flag and a Union flag, to me, they were synonymous. And uh, in 1968, I could not wait to go to Vietnam. I may have been the only guy in my school, high school. <laughs> But I'd seen too many John Wayne movies, probably, is what it was. And uh, I, it was interesting. I was going to go to the University of Tennessee, and I was afraid the war was going to end before I could go see what it was all about. And uh, so I got accepted into uh, Warren Officer Flight or Helicopter Pilot School when I was 18. Wow. <clears throat> Surprising, I didn't think I could pass the, uh, the flight exams. But uh, for a lot of reasons, when they sent me to Fort Bragg for basic or boot training, uh, they extended my starting date for uh, Warren Officer Flight School down in Fort Walters, Texas, by three months, which, as you know, in the Army is not unusual. <laughs> so, and I was so homesick. I'd never been away from home. And I just decided, you know, I'm, if I have to stay another three months at Fort Bragg and do what they've made me do the last three or four months. I, I couldn't last. So uh, I withdrew from that program and, and probably it was the right decision, but instead of them making me a clerk because of all these, what I thought were pretty high scores, uh, they sent me to infantry school down at Fort Polk, Louisiana. And, uh, oh, <laughs> and then I went as as a as you'll recall, eleven Bravo infantrymen, light weapons infantrymen, and that's and at eighteen, uh, that was the worst job I ever had because uh, it, it was not what the movies made it out to be. <laughs> <laughs> I was with the uh, first Air Cavalry Division, which is now the first Cavalry Division, and it's now an armored unit. But at that time, we were an airborne unit and just going over to air mobile and. Uh, I, I I got to the field and I realized that war was real. <clears throat> we uh, I went to the up in I Corps, 
1968 to north part of South Vietnam. And, and then we moved south to what they called elephant's ear, the fish, fish hook, uh, northwest of Saigon on the Cambodian border. And like most cherries, and as, you know, the Army tried to disguise it, we called each other cherry. You know, we'd never been there. Right. And, but the Army came up with this FNG funny new guy, like, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, every cherry was an infantry unit I was with, at Charlie Company, 2nd Battalion of the 8th Cavalry Regiment. We, uh, every one of us got put on point. And, and, you know, and, and in hindsight, we were the, probably the poorest trained army uh, in years. Uh, very little training, poor leadership, but I just have to be honest about that. And I recognize it now. But they would put these cherries like me on point. And so I walked point for about three, three and a half, four months before I got off. And it wasn't the fear of dying, I tell people. It's just the sheer exhaustion. It's right. 100 and some pounds on your back digging a hole every night, four guys to a hole. And then, you know, if you walked into an ambush ambush during the day, you oftentimes felt relief. You hope no one got killed, but you just wanted to rest. <laughs> so, <laughs> but that, I got about my sixth or seventh month over there and I didn't have to go back to the field, but I still had that desire to be a helicopter pilot. <clears throat> and so the closest I could come to it was they would allow you to volunteer to go over to be a gunner on a medevac helicopter. Mm. Now, the first tab was unusual. We called them medevacs. The other Army units called them dust-offs because the dust-offs didn't have armament or guns. The first cab said, you shoot at us, we're going to shoot you back. So we had two M60 machine guns on the chopper, and I had one of them. And I flew for about four and a half months. Uh, and I still remember after the second time I was shot down, I went in to see the first sergeant, and I and he he had been a guy on Omaha Beach in World War II, man. and he had been through Korea, so he was an old hard nosed guy in '69. And I said, first sergeant, uh, I volunteered to come over here. I'd like to transfer back to my infantry unit in the second battalion of the Eighth Cavalry. And he looked at me, and I won't use the language he used, but he essentially told me what I could do with those machine guns, and then get my place where he was going to put those machine guns out there and start cleaning them. I wasn't going anywhere. And I got shot down a third time right after that. And so I, I just decided, I can still remember this. I was only 19. I can, I, at that point I decided the army was not for me. And <laughs> uh, I, I knew I was going to come back and go, go to college. I wasn't going to stay in because, because right. I had been fortunate just before I got out of the army I was at Fort Carson, Colorado. I got an appointment to West Point. They, they call them Mustangs. They take enlisted, probably familiar. And if you pass all the tests, and I weighed going to West Point. Uh, I'd have to go to the prep school first, but it, 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 I just realized the Army wasn't for me. And, I, I, and in 1969, 1970, I would have been back in Vietnam. But uh, I mean, so when I talk about my worst job, it was really in the Army, but I would never ever trade that experience because it uh, did a couple of things. It reaffirmed my faith and it certainly gave me my best friends in life because I'm still in touch with those guys 53 years later, 54 years later. And, wow. uh, but, uh, and then everything else just fell into place. Everything fell into place. 
came back and started going to college after the army, washed dishes along the way. <laughs> I, oh, I washed dishes for a year and a half. <laughs> when oh, I got to college, yeah. But wow. uh, yeah, anyway, I, uh, I went to college and, uh, this is a this is a very true story of why I got in law enforcement. It was 1970 May Day, and I was in college out in Colorado, and I was watching the evening news, and I watched all these, for lack of a better term, treasonous thugs around the white, and I watched them stab horses with sticks because the park police were doing crowd control. I watched right. them hit police officers and knock them off their motorcycles. And as you, some of your listeners may be a little young to remember this. You may be, I'm not sure. But you know, everybody had long hair, you were hit. And a lot of people at that time liked to wear army fatigues and army gear, even though they'd never been in the military. And I made my mind up. I'm, and this is where youthfulness gets you in trouble because there's nothing worse than a young man who's not real bright. It's not well-educated, but he lets his emotions get take over. I decided at that moment I was going to become a cop. I was going to come back to Washington, D.C., and I was going to pump heads. I mean, that's really the way I was thinking. And I did that. I came back here to D.C., and I spent three years as a police officer. Uh, loved it. And then I went to Denver and I was outside of Denver and Lakewood. I was a police officer, uh, finished college out there. And uh, that's when this is very serendipitous. Uh, I'd applied for the Secret Service to be an agent and it was almost impossible to get hired because they hired about 50 agents a year and uh, squeak. And I'd already been processed. It took a year. And then Squeaky Brom tried to shoot President uh, Ford in Sacramento. And two days later, after she tried to assassinate the president, I get a call from Secret Service. And they said, Congress, everybody's trying to cover the backside, you know. And uh, <laughs> Congress said, well, they need more people. So they said, we're going to give you 50 new agents this year. So I was, I got hired. And where they sent me, they sent me to Sacramento. <laughs> and I did, and uh, I did three years there with my first field office as an agent. And having been a cop, the, the investigative work wasn't very difficult. Right. But a lot of travel. And Secret Service guys travel everywhere. And uh, we work a lot of threat cases. That's always a priority with the Secret Service. If you threaten the president, no matter what you're doing, you everything else stops and you go find the bad guy. And, and the Secret Service can find you 99.9% of the times within a day. They're, they're pretty good at that. Uh, so it's I, I enjoyed it out there. I, I tell people one of my biggest uh, non-Secret Service function, but it was a Secret Service function, is Charles Manson had been convicted in about 1970, 71, 72, after Sharon Tate merged. And Charles Manson had an enormous influence on young people in this country. And a lot of people said, well, how can that be? Well, he was in his mid-30s. 
he had already brainwashed all these young people through drugs and his power of persuasion. He's in his 30s there in their early 20s or late teens. They're all lost souls. They all have mental health issues, all on drugs. And uh, so Charles Manson had such a following that even though he was in prison, and as you may recall, they first sent him to Folsom where they had to put him in isolation because the, the, uh, some of the, the black uh, groups wanted to kill him because he was very anti-black. And the Aryan Brotherhood tried to get him to join, but he refused to join the Aryan Brotherhood. I don't know why. And so they tried to kill him. So they kept him in isolation. And then because he was so crazy, they sent him down to California Medical Facility in Vacaville. So where I'm going with this is every three months, we did in the Secret Service what we call quarterlies, people of interest to us because they influence others. Even though they're in prison, they can still send a letter to one and say, go kill this guy. He corresponded with many people. And so every three months, I'd go down there and go through his mail. And uh, then I'd interview him with another agent for about an hour and a half, two hours. And I can tell you that I don't think I ever heard a coherent sentence come out of his mouth because he was <laughs> over-medicated. But having said that, he had tremendous influence still over people. And 90% of the letters he received were from young women. Wow. There was, and uh, I remember we used to follow up and uh, locate these women to tell them, hey, you got to cease and desist. You're encouraging him to have, get you involved in a crime. Right. But I enjoyed that. I did three years interviewing Manson while I was out there. It's just one of the duties. And uh, uh, it, uh, to this day, I, I still chuckle. He was about five foot nothing. And still, he still had Swatska on his forehead that he carved in. And uh, so, I, yeah. Anyway, I, I did three years there, and then I was reassigned to Washington and uh, assigned to the vice presidential division. At that time, it was Rockefeller, and then Mondale came in with Carter. And uh, th that was an interesting time. And then Reagan and Bush were elected, and I was with them. Uh, loved Reagan, loved Bush. Uh, two, two real gentlemen. Back to, uh, I'm going to digress for a moment. Uh, I was watching a, a documentary on Netflix the other night about this young 15 year old lady missing from the Vatican in 1983. You may have seen that. Mm -mm. Uh, I'm trying to remember the name of it, but it's fascinating because they still have never found her. And it was a, it's a five, four or five part series. <clears throat> but they had a photo of Reagan with the Pope. And I always tell people that. If you ever want to be close to who you believe is a deity, you will be either Reagan or the Pope. And I can't explain to you why, but, and in particular, the Pope was just, there was something about him, Pope John Paul. You remember he was the Polish priest. Mm -hmm. uh, yep. I, I remember in 1984, we were coming back from a, a Reagan trip to China and they uh, detoured or, or diverted a group of agents up to uh, Alaska. 
the, the Pope was coming through and he did a refueling stop. I don't know where he was going. And it was two in the morning in Anchorage. Right. And there was a group of agents and we were at the airport to meet the Pope. And uh, they had arranged to have, I would think it's probably a little more than 50 young children, severely disabled. I mean, really severely disabled children, uh, mentally, physically. And you had all these beautiful little children in the airport in a, in, a, in a little enclosed area. And the Pope came in and there's no cameras, you know, just a couple of agents that were with him. And he touched every child, patted their head, kissed every child. And you could just, you know, it's, it's hard to describe it. You could feel the power of the Pope. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and I've been with him several times after that. And he was always a remarkable human being. And, uh, and Reagan in a much different way, not in a religious way, but Reagan was one of those people you trusted. You know, Reagan was like a grandfather. We all have had grandfathers or uncles who look at us when we try to explain why we're doing something wrong. And they're usually their last refrain is just do what's right. Yeah. And by Reagan, I think, was such a great president. He didn't tolerate political correctness and, and modern thought. He just said, that's not right. We're not going to do it. And yeah. uh, I, I, th I think you saw how the world was at that time. He came in at a very difficult time, 16 percent inflation or interest rates, 16, 17 percent. Many people hated him for cutting social programs, but uh, he was he persevered. And in my opinion, he was certainly the greatest president in my lifetime because I was started off with Ford and I went through, you know, Ford and Carter, Reagan, Bush, Clinton, Bush. And uh, I liked all of them as a person. Right. But the politics and the sincerity of someone you always you didn't always agree with. Absolutely. That's, you know, it's fascinating because when you think about secret service, a lot of times you most, maybe it's just me, but most people think that, you know, it's the person that travels with the president or the vice president or previous president, but there's this whole other, whole other side of the secret service that's, that's constantly investigating and searching and yeah. handling, dealing with. And that's, that's fascinating. I'd never thought about that. Yeah, the, the Secret Service, I'm sure many of your listeners would know that uh, it was created actually on the same day that Lincoln was assassinated. He signed oh. the creating it. And it wasn't created for any other reason than to stop counterfeiting, because about 50 percent of all the currency at that time in this country at the end of the Civil War was counterfeit. And oh. uh, but the Secret Service was the only Kremlin federal criminal investigative agency at that time. And 10 of our agents in 1908, if I recall my history, in 1908, 10 Secret Service agents went over and started the Bureau of Investigation, which is today the Federal Bureau of Investigation. Uh, maybe about 70, at least when I left the Secret Service, I would say 75 to 80 percent of all the agents were signed to criminal investigations around the world. Uh, they worked Enor enormous amount of cases, uh, computer fraud, access device fraud, telecommunications, counterfeiting, forgery. It, we have, I think, pretty much concurrent jurisdiction with other agencies like the FBI on most crimes, but you can't work them all. 
Uh, There are millions and millions of federal offenses committed each year. And unfortunately, uh, because of the lack of resources, probably more because of the lack of morality in this country, uh, these crimes crimes continue. And the bad guys realize that the odds of them getting caught are slim and the odds of them going to prison are even slimmer. And, And so when you arrest a guy and Secret Service and FBI are no different, when we arrest a guy, we've got to meet a threshold. In other right. words, the attorney may say, don't bring me a case that's not a, a high-profile felony or a, or a financial crime of at least a million dollars, or I'm not going to take it. So if I'm a bad guy, I've already figured this out. I'll just do small crimes. They won't miss They'll close these cases out and never work. And that's what happens. So yeah. there's a... We don't, there's not enough agents and police officers in this country to, to get all the bad guys. I had heard a statistic one time, and I can't remember exactly what it was, but it was it was astronomical. The number of um, times daily that somebody tries to do something to the president, regardless of which president it, it, it is in, on an office, they're, you know, sending mail or making some type of an assault or an offense or something against, it's just ridiculous how many. Yeah, there's, and I think I remember we testified before Congress maybe 20 years ago, and I'm sure that number hasn't decreased, but I believe we said that on any given day, there's maybe 5,000 unusual letters or letters of concern that come to the White House, to the president and vice president. And there's a significant number which are really legitimate threats. Oh, we, we've had people send, well, other than feces, we've had them send body parts, fingers, uh, uh, they, uh, disguised packages as bombs, you know, send talcum powder and as if it's a uh, anthrax or ricin. Uh, so, yeah, there's a, there is a constant... Uh, very constant flow of communications coming to the White House. And unfortunately, you know, computers have made it really easy. The emails, yeah. <laughs> and the vast majority of the time, it used to be that you'd get a drunk in a bar threatening to kill the president. Well, now the same drunk goes home and he gets on the internet. He says he's going to kill the president. And uh, that's what sets off the bells and whistles. And even though we know that's exactly what they are as a drunk, you, you got to right. run it. You got it take him into custody. You got to go to the 11th, you know, the, the full 11 miles to make sure he's not a threat. And it's uh, because there are people out there, as you saw in 1981, when Reagan was shot, you know, you, you I, I think I have this right. Since George Washington was elected president right up through um, today, I believe that the number is somewhere around there had been at least 20 different assassinations and or assassination attempts. And many of these attempts you'll never read about because they're caught. But I think we've had six presidents assassinated. If you, if you go through the history, close to it, six. And I, uh, you know, it's just, uh, so the odds of, if you're president, the odds of somebody trying to do harm, to you is it's it's greater than the average guy walking down the street that's unbelievable 
you know, I just I, I keep I always come back to this. What is wrong with people? I mean, it just just humanity is just not all, but some some humanity has just lost all sense of morality and ethics, and and it's just unbelievable that it, people can think that way. Yeah, you know, I think there's a lot of we can blame a lot of things, but. And I'm going to get on my high horse for a minute. <laughs> I have been around politicians my whole life. As when I left the Secret Service, I had several high-level jobs in government. And then I ran the Senate for Bill Frist. I was the Senate Sergeant at Arms, which it's a constitutional officer, or, or it's it's one of the two senior officers of the Senate. And I ran the day-to-day operations and had oversight along with the House Sergeant Arms for the U.S. Capitol Police. So. It's a huge job, great job, one of my best jobs ever. You know, three, four thousand people on staff. Uh, but I and I, I've been around politicians, as I mentioned, the presidents and vice presidents, and all these senators I've known for years and congressmen. But I'm always struck by the fact that not one politician will stand up when he's campaigning and look at the voters and not say, you're the problem. You're right. the, the problem. Now, this is maybe not a good analogy, but it, 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 it brought it home to me. About 20 years ago, the infamous Bill Cosby gave a speech in Philadelphia, I believe, to the NAACP uh, convention, and it's called the Pound Cake Speech. And... It's because somewhere in his speech, he talks about the little boy wanting pound cake. But the way he started that speech off, and and he hit the nail on the head, and he's the only public official I've ever seen do this. He started off by looking at his NAACP convention, predominantly Black, African-American. And he starts off, and any of your listeners can certainly find this speech on the internet. He talks about you know, don't blame society. Don't blame America. Don't blame white people. Look at yourself. Mm. America's not the reason your child's on the street selling drugs. America's not the reason that your little girl is having babies at 15. America's not that your children are not in school. They're not the reason that eight for kids can't read and write. It's you. That crowd was dead silence. But at the very end, he got an applause, a standing ovation, because all he was trying to tell people, it has nothing to do with race, nothing to do with ethnicity. It's all about accountability. Yeah. There has to be a father and a mother, and in and, and my way of thinking, and there has to be God in a family. And if you don't have that tri, you know, that triangle, then you will yeah. never achieve what you possibly could have. So as bad as Bill Cosby has been in his behavior, he he really hit a chord there with people. And my point is you will never see a politician ever stand up and tell the voter, you're the problem, get your kids under control, make them go to school, keep them from having babies, keep them off drugs. They'll never do it. They will turn around and they will blame the police. They will blame the institutions of government. They will blame yeah. the other people party and say, we need to give more, spend more money on this issue. Yeah. Yeah. 
Uh, so that's that's part of this decay that you refer to, this moral decay that we have. A hundred percent agree. A hundred percent agree. I, it's, you know, I think if we're going to clean anything up, we've got to start with ourselves first. Absolutely. You know, taking care of our families, taking care of our kids and, and being present, just being being present. You know, you're the man of the cloth, and you probably fight this as much as anyone. How do you get a child or a young person who is still, you're still able to reach out to because he's under 10 or 12? How do you get them to develop morals and a conscience when their parents have never given it to them? Absolutely. And I, so I rack my brain in, in government and politics and politicians simply say, we need to fund it. Well, how do you we, fund it? <laughs> yeah. No, because we, we, we need to go back and whack the parrots on the head. what we need to do. Yeah. It's back, back in my, my day. I'm sure back in your day, we, the, the spanking got <laughs> things squared away real quick. <laughs> Finally, the Washington Post had an article the day before yesterday on corporal punishment. And I was fascinated to learn that it's still legal in 15 states and mm. mainly southern states. And, uh, you know, I just want to say, thank God we have corporal punishment because every paddling I ever got in school down in southern Virginia, it was well earned. I, it just was. And I, you know, the, the old adage or the analogy is, is, and it's very true. If you went home and told your father and mother you got a spanking and they asked you for what, you always told them the truth, then they spanked you too because don't get it again. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I don't think too many kids were really hurt by that. I really don't. You know, I, I look at, see, I hear stories from back in the day that um, kids would get in trouble and the, the judge would give them a choice jail or military. Yeah. And, and so many of them chose the military and it, and it did a, a, an amazing job of teaching discipline and accountability and gave them a paycheck. It may have been small back, but it gave them a paycheck, gave them a sense of responsibility. And, and somewhere along the line, now we we've gotten away from that mentality and just, we throw money at it, like you said, and it's, it's, it's not working. Yeah, and, and I don't know the answer. I, I kind of like the suggestion that a few politicians have where we reinstitute what we used to have, uh, not necessarily the draft, but either it's very similar to what the Israelis do. The Israelis say you're either going to serve in the military, it's mandatory, for your two years or 18 months, whatever the time is, or you're going to, if you're a pacifist, you're going to serve in another public service you know, working in a nursing home or working with in a hospice. Those, for young people, those are the jobs. When you're young, you don't have anyone but yourself. And it really helps form who you are when you're 18, yeah. 19. You're not going to do that when you're 25 or 30, and you've got two kids and a mortgage. But I, I, I think there's a lot to be said for that. And who knows, maybe years from now that will be reinstituted in this country. I doubt it unless there's a war and then the right. draft come back. But any war we fight will probably be at such a level that it won't be a manpower war. So 
Unbelievable. Unbelievable. You know, as we, as we kind of bring this to a close, you spent, you spent many years with, with Al Gore and you said you were in and out of Nashville quite a bit, which is some stumbling grounds of mine, but um, what, what advice would you give, you know, my, my, my theme for go boldly is faith, family, and leadership. Mm-hmm. Faith first, family second, and then building, building leaders to be bold in their faith, to be bold with their families, to be bold in their leadership. You know, having worked with, with people in, in such high offices, is there, is there any piece of advice that you would give the audience that um, just to help them to understand the, the power of stepping out, being bold, taking a risk and doing, doing what you're called to do? I think all of us, as we get older, and it seems to be that's the key word, as you get older, what do they say? You can't remember what you did yesterday, but you remember everything from years ago. (laughs) True, Adults remember, we all remember the first time we walked in church. We remember the first time we saw a minister because I was three and my mother took me to a, it was a Christian church. I forget the name of the church. And I remember seeing a man uh, on a stage in this little church and he had a dark suit on and he wore glasses. And and to my way of thinking as a three-year-old, that was God. I went to see God and everything he said, I listened to, I still remember. uh, But as we age and as we become more affluent and we have families and we have material possessions, there's a period in everyone's life when you forget how you got there. You take for granted so much. And the only thing that ever brings you back to the middle of the road and gives you a good view of what's ahead is a tragedy or yeah. something that impacts your family or you or your loved ones. And that's what it often takes. It takes a loss for people to really realize they've taken so much for granted. Absolutely. Uh, I used to marvel at certain politicians, uh, and I'm not going to name any names because it wouldn't be beneficial, but there are certain people who will profess to be Christian or to be, to believe. Uh, And when the cameras go off, it disappears and their actions louder than their words. There are others who say very little and are the most devout Christians you'll ever meet. You know, and I, and I can tell you who they are. They're guys like George Bush Jr., George Bush Sr., when he was alive. Uh, Jimmy Carter, uh, Ronald Reagan. It, it was, it's not a political party. It's just based on how they grew up. Right. I just don't think in answer. I know I'm in a roundabout way. I'm trying to answer this, but I just don't think that we can get where we need to be until we have people look in the mirror, look inward, and find a role model. No matter what age you are, you need to find a role model. Yep. Because even as a kid, you'll remember, we all had an adult we looked up to. Right. Uncle, cousin, the guy, your neighbor. And they, and if they were role model then, it's because they were good people or they left an indelible impression on you. Yeah we need to go back and start over again. I know that's easy. You said, but 
we need to look at what it was like when we were a child and remember the good things we learned. Because I'm not so sure, given this uh, high-tech era we live in, where there's an instant 24-hour news cycle, and almost nothing you read or hear about on TV or in the paper is accurate the first day. It takes about three days before you really get some, you know, some portion of the truth. We live in a world of fantasy and make-believe still. And okay. America blessed for 300 years. That blessing is getting a little old right now. And uh, if we don't do something to change it internally in our own way of thinking, and, and you're the minister, you know how to get people to think. And I don't. Mine are just observations based on 70 some years of being around. And, uh, but I do worry about it. And I, I'm just glad that you've got this podcast. I'm glad that people like you are encouraging us to do the right thing because we can certainly wander as we go down this path. Absolutely. And I, you know, kind of the theme of this show tonight has just been look in the mirror. And, you know, I always, I always tell my clients when I'm coaching them that, you know, everything that you've ever been through has gotten you to where you are. And there's always a other O T H E R other side of everything that you're going through right now. You just got to keep pushing, keep grinding, keep, keep digging. And, and, and I love what you said, find that mentor, find that, that one person that you can look up to. Yeah. yeah you, re you really need that. And uh, no, I, I absolutely agree. You know, I, I'll leave you with this. There's, there's two things I used to, uh, I ran some pretty large divisions. I ran the vice presidential division and I had you know, several hundred agents at any given time or when I was in the Senate, many more. But I tried to, every person that was hired, I always brought them in and I sat down. And it was because my mentor 20 years ago, Jerry Parr, 25 years ago, Jerry Parr being the man that saved President Reagan. Uh, and by chance, Jerry Parr, the guy who threw the Reagan in the car after we shot. Jerry Parr was a minister. He was an agent, wow. but he was an ordained minister. He had a PhD in philosophy. And after he, he, after he retired from the Secret Service, he not only was a minister, but he was a counselor. And my mentor, I watched him. He called all of us in and we sat down with him. And he just talked to get to know us. And you left there with a warm feeling not because you thought he was going to be easy to work for, but because you respected him and you wanted, right. you wanted to do good things for him. Absolutely. Well, it's important to find a good mentor out there. And even today at our age, we need to find one. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. I, you know, nobody ever, nobody ever achieved anything in life on their own. No, there, there's no self-made millionaires. Somebody had to buy their product. Somebody had to leave them money. Somebody had to invest in them. Somebody had to be the, you know, there's no self-made millionaires. There's no self-made anything. Somebody contributed in some way to that. And I think we, we forget that. Well, we, we do. And, and we forget to, to share the credit. I, I, I think that today your success is measured on money or power. And that's it. Yeah. Uh, I don't think it used to be that way, but it is today. And it's at some point, uh, everyone, if you have enough money, you're not going to, 
You, you know, think about this. All the Hollywood stars and all the athletes who have millions of dollars who get in trouble for drugs and get um, and go into rehab. They have so much money and they're so bored because they have no that other than what a drug will give them. And uh, I, I think... You know, it's it's hard to talk religion because religion is something that's very private to all of us. And I, right. I this is kind of unusual. We, we mentioned it. I don't talk it with my kids. But I know that there is nothing that gives you more solace than prayer. Hmm. And prayer allows you to have a one-on-one discussion with God. And he he's the only one that's ever going to listen to you, whether you're right or wrong. But I don't know of anyone who prays and doesn't feel bad afterwards. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, what a great way to end this show. I I wholeheartedly believe that. And and I think that, you know, when we took prayer out of everything in this country is when when things begin to to change. And um and I don't know that we'll ever get back to that, but people can still pray in schools and government and just doesn't have to be out loud. So Scott, thank you so much for inviting me to be on. Absolutely, thank you, and I look forward. Maybe we can we can do this again. There, you've got story after story. I'd love to I'd love to hear. So, thank you for coming on. I'll make up some if you want. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Bill. I appreciate it. Thank you very much, Scott. Appreciate it too.